This is from 1 John, verses uh, 1 through 4, and we're continuing on in what's called uh, an Advent series. Advent just simply means God's arrival into this world and into your life, and here's how one writer of the Bible puts it. That which was from the beginning, this is 1 John 1, 1 through 4, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy, or some translations put it, so that your joy may be complete. Um, I, uh, it's our practice here at Redeemer to, to spend some moments in silence, and so I'm going to lead us in um, silence. And what we're simply asking in that moment this week is that God would teach us why it was important um, that he came into our physical reality and taught us and showed us and manifested to us this concept of eternal life. The way that that word is translated, I know in the church we, we often say that phrase, eternal life, but it's really in the original, it's called life of the new age. It's a different kind of life. It's not just uh, durative, meaning it lasts forever, but it's qualitative in nature meaning that there is a different kind of life that Jesus is offering to you right now that will be forever and ever and ever, but it's also something that you can experience right here and right now. And so when we pray, we're actually trying to remember that that's what the gospel is offering to us currently in this present moment. So let's pray. Father, it is good to be in the presence of your people. It is so wonderful to hear voices. It's so wonderful to be in each other's um, vicinity and to see faces, to, to experience the joy of another voice, to experience the witness of another human being. And Lord, that's what John's writing about with, with what is being shared into the world through Jesus Christ that he um, had tangible experience of you. And so, Lord, I, uh, I do ask that you would, by your Spirit, uh, enlighten our hearts, illumine those things which are true about you and about us, and that all of the things that would move us towards doubt, that would move us towards darkness and cynicism, um, would be shut out for a moment of our hearts and of our minds and of our bodies. And would you do that for us right now? In Christ's name, amen. Um, when I first started out in ministry, I would go preach at these churches that had older congregations, and I was doing work on, on campus, and I would tell the, old, the older congregations, because they were always saying stuff like, the campus is drawing our young folks away from 
faith and drawing our, our young folks away from God. And I would say, actually, uh, the campus is just a revealer of what's always true inside a heart of a person. And so the campus doesn't um, draw, draw somebody that never had faith into a, a state where they don't know God. And so it's just manifesting what was always true about that person if somebody lost their faith when they got to the college campus. However, there's another type of student that um, actually John addresses in his letter, and it's the Christian who doesn't know that they are a Christian. So oftentimes, if you grow up in the, the church and you actually have genuine faith and you got on campus, uh, you're going to be tempted, you, you go to a Religion 101 class, you're going to be tempted to think in your mind that it's just kind of dumb to believe in miracles, like, God doesn't come into the flesh. God doesn't rise from the dead. Like, that's not, uh, it's foolish. And also, you're going to be tempted to walk away from God because it's just more pleasurable in your five senses to not follow Jesus in college. It just, it appears to feel better. And I, and I said to these older uh, dear saints, I was like, you know, the, that's, that's the two main temptations when, when you're on campus. It's through the mind and through the senses, through the body. And I'll never forget, this older pastor came up to me and he said, you know, Matt, those aren't two temptations that just apply to young people. Um, that's what old people struggle with too. Uh, that's the constant temptation is to, how, how do I make sense? Um, and this doesn't necessarily even apply to religion. If you, if you think about like, okay, how do I make sense of the disconnect between my body and mine, and how can I properly understand what I'm actually experiencing? And and I can prove that that there's a disconnect to you by just an alarm clock. If an alarm clock wakes you up in the morning, what your mind is saying is like, you need to get up, and what your body is saying is like, no, not yet. This feels nice. This feels cozy. Now, during the time that John wrote this letter, it was in a section called Asia Minor, and he was speaking into a culture that they, they struggled to believe that the physical world was as important as the non-physical world. This later became known as a philosophy called Gnosticism, which was a very, in, in its own time, it was a very exciting and captivating idea, but it taught that the mind and what you sort of instinctively feel internally is more meaningful than what your body can take in, than what your body can, can perceive. And this led many to many conclusions, but one of the things that this culture did is that they, they would either debase or disregard the body, or they would just discard it. And so if the body didn't matter, you could just do whatever you wanted to with it. You could appease its appetites, you could indulge it, you ate, you drank, you had a lot of sex. Or there's another camp that said, no, the body is, is the bad stuff, the flesh. And so they would starve it. And then they would make it uh, sort of averse to anything pleasurable. And so the Gnostics gave way more attention and thought to how they use their minds and less to their real embodied lives. I'm so impressed that you guys are still with me. Hang on. <laughs> Hang on. Um, they taught that the flesh sort of enclosed the enlightened true self. Now, 
why, why in the world would I tell you this? What is the point of that? What is the point of talking about that during Christmas? Where do you spend most of your time? Where is most of your attention at currently in your life? We, we are by far the most mobile culture in history, period. But if the data is even remotely, remotely accurate, adults spend about four hours a day online and teenagers spend about eight. And I do want us to think, the moment you hear me, think, hear me say that, our, our tendency is to go to guilt and shame. And I don't, I don't want us to do that. I want us to be curious right now. Whether, you know, whether it's like on our profiles or Instagram or Amazon, do ask the question, what is it that makes, that makes technology so captivating? What is it that, like, if you, if you go into my home or you go into a store, think about the language that we use, the rhetoric that we use. I want to connect to the Wi-Fi so that I can be connected to other people. And what's so interesting is that that's, as important as connecting to the embodied person that's like giving you the passcode, you know? What is that? And my, my only point is, we are not all that different than the first century folks and how they thought about the body and the mind. And Christmas is no less potent now than it was 2,000 years ago and here's, here's what I struggle with, uh, and I know that others struggle with this too. Y'all, we have a hard time being where we are. That makes sense? We have a hard time being in each other's presence physically. And as one, as one pastor precisely put it about this passage, he said, the Apostle John is writing to people who are constantly talking about the ideal and almost never experiencing it in their actual embodied lives. And, you know, Christmas is so fascinating in our culture, as modern as we are. Um, the thing that I've observed, even as I've gotten older, I don't think that Christmas has lost its magic even in our modern world. There, there's still a sense of, like, idealness about Christmas that's held on to. Um, and you get, like... Christian songs pumping into the, you know, the centers of capitalism in our culture. It's like, well, what, what is that? Well, that's what Christmas is, is, is sort of the, the gospel, is that the ideal has come into the physical space that you and I inhabit and can be experienced. And so I, I really don't have enough uh, points to this, going through this passage this morning, but I, I want to start by talking about the physicality of Jesus because John goes out of his way to describe Jesus' physicality in the first four verses of his letter. John is talking um, to his culture, and he's using what, what we would call like pop culture language to describe the gospel. That's what he's doing. And he's saying, look, this was always from the beginning, and the word of life, that word, word, was the word logos in, in Greek, and that meant sort of the meaning of everything, where everything was pointing to. It was a hotbed issue of their day, and the secular culture is like, logos is where it's at, the word, the word. And so 
So what John does is that he takes that language, and in verse 2 and 3, he states that this is, this is what the Logos is about. It's a different kind of life that has always existed between the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And what they felt among one another, what they experienced among one another, the love that they had with one another was made manifest in a person. And that person, John says, is somebody that I laid my head on his chest like I heard his heartbeat. That, that phrase in, in verse 1 where it says it's we, we touched with our hands, that has the connotation of coming upon something when you're blind or in the dark and you kind of, you kind of grope it. That's what the word means. And so he's like, that's what I did with Jesus' actual body and what I was feeling and what I was touching was this life of the new age. This thing that existed among the, the persons of the Trinity that is beyond what you desire. It is the most ideal thing that you could possibly imagine, that what we experience among, among each other is just a small mirror, a small taste of what's to come. And he's saying, I'm writing this so that you could have joy that's full or complete in verse 4. But the overarching goal of John's letter, he explains it in chapter 5, verse 13. He's like, I'm writing these things for you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That th this can actually be known by you and me and them like in this current moment. There was a category of people in Asia Minor who did not think that they were Christians, but they actually were. And the test for genuine conversion throughout the letter is that do you believe that God was embodied in flesh? The church argued over that for two, three hundred years. Do you believe that God was embodied in flesh in the person of Jesus? Do you think that sin is a thing? Is it a concept that you, that you believe in? And, and do you love other people? Those are the three tests that John is giving. Like, if you, if you believe those three things, then you're a genuine Christian. If you do those three things, you're a genuine Christian. There were some in their, in their midst that claimed that they were the, the real enlightened ones, that they knew the, the secret knowledge but what, what ultimately was made manifest in their lives is that they didn't, they didn't believe that God like, came into the world in flesh. They didn't really think that sin was that big of a deal, like the indulgence of the mind and the body. And they, did not think, they, they didn't feel obligated to love those who disagreed with them. And what he's doing is that he's critique, John's critiquing popular culture, but he's also engaging with the parts that are onto something. And that's part of the incarnation. That's the story of Christmas, that God comes into the world in a way in which it's knowable to us, in ways that in some ways are apprehendable to us. And he comes to save us from sin so that we would love each other through incarnating into each other's lives, speaking language in ways that are discernible to people that don't know Jesus. Joy is not complete until it's shared. 
This is why we share pics online. This is why we FaceTime during birthdays. Christmas is the per- for the you know Christmas is for the purpose of human joy that that's lasting. But what the incarnation also teaches us is that God was willing to share in the disappointments as well. Why would God offer so much life and joy, and yet we rarely, we rarely experience what John's talking about right now? We rarely have an overabundance of joy that we want to share with each other. Um, and, and here's where Jesus really shows us how to make sense of the gap between our minds and our bodies. That like, I know I'm supposed to feel this way about God. I know I'm supposed to have an abundant sense of joy with him. But if I'm, if I'm honest, like I don't actually experience that in my tangible life. What do we do with that gap with like the real and the ideal? And if, if you uh, experience this life and you have those questions, what the scriptures are constantly inviting you into is to, to engage with God with that. Like, why does, why, it, why does the cancer remain? Why do the wars continue? Like, why, why do I still have anxiety when I know all this stuff about God and it just plagues me? Like, why can't I just get over my desperate need for approval? Like, why do I still think, like, I don't like my body? And I know God does. And why, why can't it just get better? Why, why can't I just be satisfied? Well, what, what Christmas is, is saying and revealing to us is that you can actually have a different approach to God, especially in the midst of your disappointments. That in that disappointment, in that disconnect between what you know to be true about God and what you actually experience, that Christmas comes right into that, Jesus comes right into that, and it asks you a question. And it says, if you, if you only believe God when it's good, if you only believe God when it makes perfect sense to you, or when it's like a net positive, you're still trying to stay in control. I mean, that's what, that's what all organizations and restaurants and businesses, this is why they have virtual experiences right now before you actually go. Because we won't go unless we know exactly what we're getting and we know that there's solid reviews. And even if we do go, we're like, prove it. Prove it. Make me come back. They say that uh, in public speaking, a listener within seconds of hearing your voice, has already chosen to engage with what you're saying for the rest of the talk. (laughs) We think we are rational decision makers, but we're not. We choose based upon instinct and feel. And I was talking with somebody who works with Gen Z, and I was like, what's peculiar about Gen Z? And they said, right up front, you have to give them a reason for why you're saying is worth their time. Or they'll tune you out and they'll keep scrolling. And I felt like that older pastor to me many years ago. And I was like, man, that's all of us. That is all of us. I cannot tell you how many times I've started a show or a movie on Netflix. And you don't even have to get up and take the VCR out anymore. You can just say stop. You don't even have to hit a button. 
And what I realize is that I only choose the things that I perceive to be worth my time. I only choose the things that I perceive to be worth my time. What if my whole life is set up to keep that mantra in place? What if I just choose to think whatever supports that underlying commitment to myself? That if you're not worth my time, if something's not worth my time, I'm out. And what John is showing us is that, brother, sister, Jesus is way, way more committed to your true self than you. We all initially first approach God like this. We all think, is this worth my time? Is this beneficial for me? And through Jesus Christ, you guys, this is what's called the sanctifying process. This is what it means to step into a a different kind of life. Jesus Christ allows us to flip that question back towards God, and we hear him say to us, are you worth my time? Whose world do you live in? Whose body do you use? Whose mind do you have? Did you know that we are more than just our feelings and thinking? That the deeper part of you is God's merciful arrival, His advent into your life is actually more foundational to who you are than, than what you feel and what you think. And you may, you may be like, well, how does that make sense? What if you get dementia? What if you can't feel properly? What is true of you then? What's true of you then is that you were still worth God's time. And the testimony of the gospel is that all the pain and all the disappointment that God allows to continue in your life has actually been curated so that you would desire a connection with him that's beyond what you perceive on the surface of your life. And it's like going underneath the water. You know, when you go underneath the water, it's quiet and the outside world is barely discernible. And what you realize is that there's a whole other part of you underneath the surface, the iceberg of who you are that's actually controlling everything. And God sees that part of you too. And what he's come to do is is he's come to do the long, difficult work of breaking that up. Of what's underneath the surface. You know, if you read through the Gospels, one of the very peculiar things is that Jesus never seems to be in a rush. He's not late or early. He arrives precisely when he means to just like the wizard. That's the interesting thing about his arrival into our, into our lives. You can only see it in retrospect, but he has, y'all, he has orchestrated the details of your life perfectly so that you would eventually ask this question, were you worth his time? Were you? Everything in your being says, of course, but then there's another part of you that's like, well, I don't know. 
Everything in Scripture says, of course, more than you could ever know. I was worth his time, even when I was avoiding him in my mind and body. Until that's revealed to you, what's happening is that you're going to hold on to control, and that iceberg is going to, is going to dictate everything. And you'll hold on to whether God's worth your time, and you'll have a, di- a very difficult time processing suffering, not because of the pain, but because we, we can't conceive of a God who would severely disappoint you until you come to him for a different type of life. You know, the Apostle John, he's an old man writing this, and he talks like an old man. He's very repetitious in, in this book. And um, I was sitting with one of your parents who passed away, Heidi and Gretchen's dad, once, and professor at UNL of biology, some of the hard sciences. And I've shared this with you before, but I, I, asked, I asked him, I was like, what do you, what do you think it's going to be like when you die? And he said, I think it's going to be like falling into the loving arms of Jesus. Not a dummy. Part of finding joy is learning in this life to release yourself into the loving arms of Jesus. And how you know it's beginning to happen is that your fears, as the hymn says, your fears begin to cease and your strivings begin to cease and you begin to get still. Martin Lloyd-Jones, British pastor, when people would come to him and they would say, I'm really trying to be a Christian, he would say, then you don't understand what Jesus is offering. John is saying that the highest level of love and connection between the Father and the Son is currently yours and accessible right now. And the only thing left to do is to believe that you are enchanting to God. The New Mexico state motto is the land of enchantment. Do you know what our state motto is? Aside from the good life. (laughs) Our state motto is, honestly, it's not for everybody. I've been thinking about this quite quite a bit. Um, I want to become you. By the way, I want to love what you love. Um, Here's what I'll say about that mantra, though. If we're not careful here, we will think that we are humble when in reality we're just embracing shame. the downplaying of oneself, the inability to actually own the beauty and the glory of who you are. There's a frugality of spirit here that exists that will help us survive, but it does not help us understand and comprehend the abundant love and joy of God. And it's not prideful to say, at the very least, God must be enchanted with us. Otherwise, why would he send us Jesus? He's, meaning, he sees Nebraska, and honestly, you're worth suffering for. What would it look like to embrace that? To fall into that? 
But the real reason that God loves you is not because of what you have to offer, but simply because you're lovely to him. And you may say, well, where do you see that in Scripture? Everywhere, literally everywhere. The book of Hosea says about Israel and Ephraim, which is a picture of God's people, is that we make his heart recoil, even when we're doing terrible things. But in our text, I mean, you tell me what you see in verses 2 through 4. Eternal life, it must mean experiential, perpetual, intoxicating, emotional, and cognitive joy with God himself in mind and body. Even if you don't know God on that level, the whole book of First John was written to ask you this question, well, would you like to? Do you want to? And I know you got hang-ups. I know you got pain. I got pain too. But John is saying, that's why Jesus came, so that you can know this stuff, so that you can know him. And if you have ever experienced it, it will feel like you are in sync with yourself and with God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that men and women were really meant to live a life in communion with God, and that happiness in a full sense is only possible when you obey the law of your own being. The law of your own being is that God is enthralled with you. The law of your own being is that God can't get over you. And the law of your own being is that it will feel like breathing in oxygen for the first time when you obey him. Christmas teaches us that Jesus brought the real and the ideal together in his body, and we can have community with him and through him with one another. And we don't have to downplay the body or the mind, but we can see that Jesus affirms and renews both and brings the fullness of joy, the completeness of joy. And one of the things I want you to begin to think about is that, you know, God has made this physical world um, enchanted with his glory. It's enchanted with him everywhere. Your life is enchanted with the glory of God. That's why Jesus came. Let's pray and confess our sins, and then we'll continue in worship through the table and through music. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for coming into this world, for your advent into our lives. And we ask now that we would uh, rest in your love, that we would rest in your loving arms, and that we would fall, um, fall away from trying to control um, and, and realize that you have, you have come to us and you are in constant pursuit of us. And we can be still. We can be still and know that you're God. In Christ's name, amen.